The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. This morning we'll be reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And all God's people said, Would you pray with me? Father, even when our hearts tell us otherwise, even when our thoughts lie to us, even when we start to believe that we are perhaps misguided and crazy, we know that what we need more than anything else in all the world is to see you. So we gather together as a people with a desire for exactly that. We open this word and we sit underneath it. We do not twist it. We do not manipulate it. We do not bend it to our own wills. We sit under it. Trusting that by your spirit we will come to see you as you are. To see ourselves as we are. And to see our glorious Savior Jesus Christ as our only hope. Father, we ask you to work in the way that only you can to help this to happen. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So go ahead and return to your feet, please. We read this morning's text. We begin our study this morning, the book of Ephesians. We'll read the first two verses. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, again, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what your word has said. We love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So whether or not you realize it, you are constantly engaged in the process called interpretation. 
Interpretation is simply the way by which we understand a message that we've received. All day long, you're receiving messages, verbal, nonverbal, written. And all day long, you're having to determine, how am I going to understand what I've just received? Now, the effort and the conscious thought that goes into this understanding, it's going to be very strongly related to how close you are to the person sending the message and the context in which the message is sent. Let me give you an example of this. I know that it's simplistic, but sometimes simple helps. Let's imagine that my wife sends me a text, and that text simply reads, I'm going to kill you. Let's imagine that a police officer, just a random policeman, somehow gets a hold of that phone, he opens it up, and he reads these words. This man has no clue how to understand what he's just read. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know Amanda. He does not know what's elicited this message. And so unless this man does some digging, some research, he may very well come to the conclusion that she is actually threatening to take my life. Without some real effort and study, this man has no hope of rightly understanding the message that he's received. Now let's suppose that instead of a policeman, it's someone else out in the community, someone I know. Not a friend necessarily, but maybe someone that I did business with in my former life. Maybe he's seen my family on Facebook. Maybe his wife has served with mine at a couple of school functions perhaps. So this same man, he, he finds this phone, he opens it up, and he reads the message, I'm going to kill you. Now he's seen my family from afar. We don't seem like particularly violent people. And so probably almost immediately he rules out actual violence. But without knowing anything more of the situation, he will probably start to think to himself and maybe even tell others, uh-oh, the seals are having problems. Let's suppose instead of some random man out there, it's one of you, people that I actually do life with. You know me, you know my personality, you know Amanda's personality. If you're close enough to us, you've probably heard her say more than once, I'm going to smother you in your sleep. And so you open the phone and you read that very same message. I'm going to kill you. So instead you chuckle to yourself and think, I bet he used her toothbrush again. But let's suppose, instead of one of you getting a hold of this message, it comes directly to me as it was intended. Now I know Amanda better than any one of you. And I know the exact circumstances that caused her to send this message. You see, I know that Amanda had, had her eyes on a pair of uh, boots. And I know that she had told me that she loved these boots, but they were too expensive for her to feel good about buying for herself. And so I read these very same words, I'm going to kill you. And because I'm so close to the situation, without any real conscious thought, without any effort, I immediately know that she's come home and she's found the boots. She's surprised. She's flattered. Deep down, she feels a little bit guilty that the money's been spent on her. But at the end of the day, she loves the boots. She loves me. And when I get home, I'm going to get a big old kiss. But don't you see, now, the closer I get to the message, the closer I get to the messenger, the more of the circumstances I know, the greater chance I have of rightly receiving it. You must understand that every single day you're receiving messages. And every single one of those messages, it's being run through a series of filters. What you know, what you don't know, what you feel, what emotions you're experiencing in that moment, your own abilities of reason. So you must understand that the question is not whether or not you're interpreting messages. The question is whether or not you're interpreting them well, whether or not you're coming to the proper conclusion, whether or not you're understanding what the sender of the message actually meant by what they said.
Now I say all that and all that I'll say next is way of introduction, not just to this morning's sermon, but to the months that lie ahead as we struggle through this book called Ephesians. You see, I want you to understand that as you come into this place, your job is not just to sit and hear what I think about this letter. The desire is for you to come into this place, having wrestled with it yourself and coming to as deep and as true and as accurate an understanding as humanly possible. Spiritually possible. Your job is not to come in here and be spoon-fed. And you see, for many people, just simply this recognition will immediately improve their ability to understand the messages they receive. Realizing that even when you're not fully cognizant of it, even, even when there's no mental effort that you're aware of, you are always deciphering the messages that you receive. Also realizing that every step closer you get to the sender of the message and the circumstance, the, the situation surrounding the message, the easier it gets to rightly understand it. Or to say that another way, the further you get from the sender, the further you get from the circumstances that elicited the message, the more work will be necessary for you to understand it. And this is what makes the study of the Bible, biblical interpretation, so very demanding. Because you see, every single person in the example that I just gave you, they spoke the same language. They lived at the same time. They came from the same culture. They were familiar with the same colloquialisms. But that's not the case when we come to the Bible. When we're studying a book, particularly a book like Ephesians, a letter, written by a man that we've never met, to a people that we've never met, in a culture in which we've never lived, in a language with which we've never, a language we've never spoken, some 2,000 years ago. You understand the tremendous gap, the tr- tremendous distance that exists between us and this original writing. You understand that to rightly understand it, it's going to take great effort. But dear friends, you must hear me. Firstly, it's worth it. The effort that goes into studying this word is worth it. King David, he wrote that God's word is much more to be desired than gold, even much more than pure gold. That is sweeter than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb. Now you understand that King David, he didn't have the gospel of Mark. He didn't have the letters of John. He's talking about the law. The first five books of your Bible, the precepts, the commandments, the laws, even the book of Leviticus. He's saying, I delight in this law. I cherish this word. He's saying to us, you must look to the same law. You must look to the same word and you should desire it more than fine gold. You should delight in it more than pure honey. But I need you to understand what he's saying. Because if you don't understand this, then you will never rightly come to God's word. You will greatly inhibit your ability to understand God's word. You must know that David did not love the law because it tickled his ears, because it told him how great he was. David loved the law because in the law he saw God. If you'd allow me to paraphrase what he said, I would say this, God, you are worth more than fine gold. You satisfy me more than pure honey, and in your law I see you. Therefore, I cherish your word. I delight in your law. There is great joy in my studies. Dear friends, you must understand that studying God's word takes work, but it's worth it. Secondly, you must know that God wants you to understand this word. 
is God brings you to this word by the power of his spirit. He recognizes, and you must recognize it, as the infinite creator of everything that is. We finite beings, we will never be able to fully capture in our little minds all that he is. And yet the things that God has chosen to reveal to us, he wants you to know. I'm not talking about professional theologians. I'm not talking about pastors. I'm not talking about wise men of an age gone by. I'm talking about you, a child of God, someone filled with the Spirit. God wants you to understand what he has said here. And he's given you everything that you need. He's given you the Spirit. He's given you eyes to see and ears to hear. He's brought you into a body. He's equipped men to come and help you, to walk alongside you, to train you, to help you as you study this word. Dear friends, God wants you to understand this word, and he's given you everything that you need to do exactly that. Now listen, no one's ever going to master this book. I dare say no one's ever going to master even a single portion of this book. But beloved, you can begin growing in your understanding of God's word today and never stop until your very last breath. You might say that the word of God is like an ocean of infinite depth whose waters come all the way up to the shore. You will never reach the bottom of it, and yet it's available to any who would just step in. God wants you to understand his word. So what does this look like? As we set out to study this book of Ephesians verse by verse, word by word, we seek to rightly understand what this message means. What is this meant to look like? Well, firstly, you pray. Before you do anything else, before you read the word, before you open your Bibles, you pray. If you want to, you can steal the words of David yet again from Psalm 119, verse 144, where he says, Lord, give me understanding that I may live. The simplest prayer you could ever offer. Dear friends, this isn't a magic spell. This isn't some code word that lets you into some secret society. It's that we know that when we pray in accordance with God's will, knowing that he wants you to understand his word, trusting that when we pray in accordance with his will, he delights to give us the thing that we ask for, knowing that we can come to him and we can ask for wisdom, and he does not give it begrudgingly to us. We don't come before God and say, God, I don't understand your word. Would you please bring me to a greater understanding? And then he slaps us across the face for being fools. No, he loves that prayer. You're coming to him and saying, God, you are more precious to me than gold. I delight in you more than honey, and I want more. Would you increase my capacities? Would you sharpen my mind? Would you give me wisdom and understanding so that I can see more of you in your word? God, please help me see. Now, what if you don't have that desire? What if you can't earnestly offer that prayer? What if you can't say with sincerity, God, I do delight in your word, and I want to see you more than I want anything else this world has to offer? You ask for that too. You come to God and you say, God, I know that you will grant in me. I trust that you will work in me the things that you have commanded. Do you understand this? God calls you to a thing and then he works in you to bring you to a will and a working of that thing. So just as we don't need to be bashful when we come to God and ask him to give us greater understanding, we don't need to be bashful when we come to him and say, God, cause me to love you more. Cause me to delight in your word. Cause me to want to get up this morning and study. That's the first prayer I offer every single morning. Literally before anything else, I wake up and I say, Father, give me a delight in your word. Cause my studies to be a joy. Bring me to a clear understanding of you. Dear friends, he has answered that prayer day after day after day. I cannot wait to hit my office 
and dive deeply into this word. And it's not because I'm a good dude. I'm not. It's not because I'm super spiritual, because I'm not. It's because I, just like you, have seen and tasted and want more of who God is. And he loves that prayer. So first, before we do anything else, we pray. Before we open the word, before we read the word, we pray and we ask him to work in us the thing that he has commanded. And then we read. Not just one verse, not just two, the entire book. We did that together last week, didn't we? We do this over and over again. If it's a book of Ephesians, it's easy. We can do it in one sitting. But if you're reading Isaiah or Genesis or something like that, maybe you divide it up. But you read the entire book in its entire context. You might read multiple translations. You might begin to jot down some notes. If you have some observations as you read through, perhaps you might begin to do that. But honestly, at this point, your job, your hope is that you'll just get a flow for the text, that you'll just allow the word of God to wash over you and to seep into your heart. You'll begin to get some understanding as the Spirit works in you, as you bathe in the beauty of God's Word. You come to some understanding of what He's saying. Dear friends, I, I say with absolute confidence that for some of you, merely praying and reading an entire book of Scripture will bring you to greater joy and understanding than you ever imagined possible. That in and of itself might completely transform your understanding and your relationship to the Word of God. But I'd like to make one more suggestion. I'd like to tell you that the single thing that you can do, other than prayer, I think perhaps the single thing you can do that can bring you to a deeper and greater understanding, more accurate understanding of God's word is coming to his word with questions. Coming to his word and asking him to set some context for you. Now, in the average, ordinary, contemporary Sunday school class, these questions would be all about us. What would happen is you'd read some portion of God's word. Somebody would quickly, quickly throw out what they believe this text means to them. And then immediately we'll all start popcorning around the room talking about how we're meant to apply this to our lives. We rush through some hasty interpretation and immediately go to the application. But that's putting the cart way before the horse. You've got to remember the analogy that I gave you about the text message. Now, if this man had simply come to this message and without any searching, without any struggle, without any work, he immediately assumed that he knew what this message meant and then he acted on what he thought the message meant, Amanda would have ended up in cuffs. It requires work. It requires questions. Before we can get to what does this word mean to me, certainly before we get to how am I meant to respond to this word, we've got to ask, what do these words actually mean? So we come to this word with some critical questions before making any real deep observations, certainly before we make any application, we come and we set the stage. We ask God to tell us, number one, who wrote these words? Number two, to whom did they write them? Number three, in what context was this message sent? What elicited this response? What is this man hoping that would happen in response to the message that he sent? And then number three, what kind of writing is this? Is it a gospel? Is it prophecy? Is it a letter like the book of Ephesians? Dear friends, again, I tell you, if you come to God's word like this, you'll find it opening up in ways you would never imagine possible. Thankfully for us, that very first question, it's answered in the very first word of this letter. Who wrote this? We find it right here. It's to that word, or more precisely, to that name that I'm going to draw your attention this morning. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are filled, excuse me, and are faithful in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Paul. 
Now, in recent years, there have been a number of men that have sought to cast doubt over the Pauline authorship of the book of Ephesians. They believe that perhaps it was one of Paul's followers that wrote this letter and simply signed Paul's name to it. Now, the problems with this argument are many. Firstly, if you look back through church history, you'll find that the very earliest members of the church, they both held that Paul was the author of this letter and that this letter was authoritative, that it was divinely inspired, that it was the word of God. Number two, if you listen to the arguments of these men that say that Paul did not in fact write the book of Ephesians, what you'll pretty quickly find is they don't base this on any concrete evidence. They don't base this on anything that they can point to in any other passage of scripture. What they say is because of the style of writing, because of the theology that they find in the book of Ephesians, because of the way that the book of Ephesians relates to a book like, um, a book like uh, Colossians perhaps, that they say maybe this isn't a writing from Paul. Maybe this is one of Paul's followers trying to um, copy him in some way and just sign his name. Now, I will leave it to you to determine for yourself, to go do your own studies, to go grab some commentaries, to determine for yourself whether or not you believe that Paul has written this letter. I will tell you that I am thoroughly convinced. I'll give you some good books. You come to me and see me. I'll give you some good books on either side of the argument, but I'll tell you that in my mind, the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of the fact that the apostle Paul is the one who's written this letter. So who is Paul? Well, you've probably heard that the Apostle Paul was a man who had once been called Saul and that God then changed his name from Saul to Paul. I've certainly spoken in these terms. Whenever we think about the man in Romans 7, the wretched man in Romans 7, we'll ask, was this pre-conversion Saul or was this Christ follower Paul? But I have to tell you, as we read through the life of Paul, as you read through the words of Luke in the book of Acts, or you read through the autobiographical things that Paul reveals about himself in his letters, you will not find any reference to such a name change. You see, whenever God changed Jacob's name to Israel, it's recorded for us in Genesis 32. Then God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Whenever Jesus changed Simon Peter's name, or Simon's name to Peter, it's recorded for us in John 1. But this wasn't the case with Saul. You see, even after Saul's encounters with the risen Christ, Saul was still called Saul. As you work through the moment of, from the moment of Saul's conversion in Acts 9 all the way up until Acts 13, every time we hear about him preaching, every time we hear about him being chased down and persecuted by the Jews, even when we hear him referred to by the Holy Spirit himself, Saul is still called Saul. As a matter of fact, we don't even hear the name Paul until we get to Acts 13, verse 9. It's there that Saul and Barnabas are sent out on a missionary journey. They go, to, they go to Cyprus. There in Cyprus, we're told that they meet a pagan governor, a man who desires to hear the word of God. But within the governor's court, there's a Jewish magician, a false prophet, that this man is trying to steer the governor's heart away from faith. He's trying to, he's trying to dispute with Saul and Barnabas and make sure that this man doesn't believe the words that they've said. We read here in Acts 13, verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at the magician and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. It's a fascinating encounter. We're gonna study this, God willing, when he brings us there. I don't know when that's going to be. But the important thing to see is that Saul's other name was Paul. I submit to you that this is not by spiritual birth, but by natural. You see, we know that Saul, Paul, in addition to being a Jewish man, was a Roman citizen by birth. He says that to the centurion in order to avoid a flogging in Acts 22. 
we know that he had been born on the, in, in the, um, the free city of Tarsus. We know that somehow or another his parents had become Roman citizens and therefore this Jewish man called Saul, by birth, he was a Roman citizen. And so it would not have in any way been uncommon for him to have both a Jewish and a Roman name. Do You begin to see now how God has perfectly orchestrated this thing. So this man who would be the apostle to the Gentiles, this man who would go out into the Roman world and share the gospel, that he would have this name, Paul, this understanding of culture, the Roman culture that allowed him, that enabled him to be all things to all men. You see the way God was working, that Saul had always been Paul. And that it wasn't until this first encounter, it wasn't until his, Gentile, his uh, mission to the Gentiles began in earnest that we first see Luke using this name. And that from that point all the way out, he is now called Paul. Now, if you're not convinced by this, that's okay. If you want to continue to think that Saul was the unsaved man and Paul was a saved man, no harm, no foul. The critical thing to see here is how God has orchestrated all things to bring this man to this very purpose. Now, as you likely know, Paul was not just any Jew. He was a Jew with the absolute supreme pedigree. We see as he rattles off some of his credentials to the church in Philippi, Philippi uh, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was born to the nation of Israel, a child of Abraham, the chosen people of God, blessed with the covenants, the law, the prophets, the promises of the eternal kingdom. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. This was a prominent tribe, a, a faithful tribe. Very likely he was named after the, another great Benjaminite, the first king of Israel, a man named Saul. His parents, we see, had been obedient Jews. He'd undergone all the right ceremonies and rituals. He had been circumcised on the eighth day, just as the law demanded. He was a true Hebrew. You see, like these others, they had lost the Hebrew language. They had lost the Hebrew culture. Even though he had grown up as both a Jew and a Roman citizen, he had not lost all those things. He was a true Hebrew. In addition to this, he was orthodox and conservative. He was devoted to the law. We'll learn later that he had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a great rabbi, that he had learned the law. He had devoted himself to keeping it and to teaching others to study it. He lived a life of great zeal for the law, life of great discipline. He says that he himself was blameless. This doesn't mean sinless, but it means that according to every letter of the law, he was continuing to live this life in dedication to doing what God had commanded. And yet we look backwards and we know that Paul was spiritually dead. He was a son of disobedience. He was a child of wrath. He was a true enemy of God. You see, for men like Paul, you might... You might think of the other Pharisees that we studied whenever we walked through the life of Jesus. They could not think rightly about the law. You remember what we said about King David? David cherished the word of God. He delighted in the law because in the law, by the working of the Spirit, he saw God. He saw the infinite holiness of God, his incomparable and unfading light. He saw that there was not even a shadow, not even the faintest hint of sin or unrighteousness or anything unholy in God. You see, for David, by the working of the Spirit, he saw in the law the face of God, and this drove him to deep, faithful worship. You must know that by this very same Spirit, this very same law, it also drove David to a sense of repentance. You see, against the backdrop of God's holiness, by that very same light that illuminated the glorious face of God, David saw his own filth. 
He saw the darkness of his own heart. David loved the law. He knew that by breaking the law, he was spitting in the face of God. He wasn't just breaking some ordinances. It wasn't just about some commandments. It was about rejecting who God is, rejecting God's ownership over all creation. This is why he would cry out, against you and you alone have I sinned. David truly loved the law, and he knew to break the law was to sin against God, and yet his flesh continued to win. An adulterer, a liar, a murderer. Time after time after time, the very same light that showed him the beauty of Christ, the glorious face of God, revealed to him his own filth, his own inability to do anything to be right with God. The contrast couldn't have been any greater. And David knew that apart from some working of God, that he would always be unclean and eternally separated. He knew that he had no hope in the kingdom of God unless he acted, unless God, that is, acted. That's why he cried out to him then, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David saw in the law not just the beauty of God, not just his own wretchedness, but his complete inability. He knew that if he was going to be saved, if he was going to have access to the true and eternal kingdom of God, then God must do something. Otherwise, he would live this life as nothing but a stench in the nostrils of the God he loved. And so in repentant faith, David cried out. He cries out for mercy, trusting in God's promises, knowing of his steadfast love, knowing of his willingness and his desire to not only cleanse but set free and save those that are his. And so David was able to truly delight in the law, not because he saw the law as a way to get to God. You see, David trusted that God had done absolutely everything that would gain him access but because in the law, he saw God. In the law, he saw his own inability. And in the law, he was driven to deeper dependence upon God. Are you seeing the relationship? you seeing the way that David came to the law? But this is not the way that the Pharisees treated it. This is not the way that a man like Paul would have treated the law in his flesh. Rather than peering into the law and seeing the glorious face of God, rather than looking in the law and seeing this, this constant reminder of how desperately they needed God's mercy and strength, Instead of being driven into deeper communion with God through his law, coming in trust and reliance upon his saving power, Pharisees like Paul, they saw the law as a ladder to be climbed to salvation. They saw it as an enemy to be overcome, an opponent to be conquered, rather than a gift from God. This is because they did not pursue the law by faith, but as if it were by works. Do you understand? They didn't see it as a gift from God, a way in which they might see and come to greater faith and dependence upon him. For Paul, it was a thing to be ascended. Again, I say it was an opponent to be conquered. It was a way of earning salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God. And so because of this, these men could not truly delight in the law of God. How could you? It was a thing that I must conquer. It's a hurdle that I must overcome. There's no delighting in a thing like this. But then here comes Christ. He preaches to them that, after having perfectly fulfilled the law, he preaches to them that there's nothing for you to do here. I've done it all. In my life, in my death, in my resurrection, in my ongoing work as a great high priest, there's nothing to be done, so simply trust in me. Repent of your good works. Let loose of your efforts and fall against me. Rest in me. All the blessings of my obedience will become yours. There's absolutely nothing you can do to add to my righteousness. If you would trust in me, my righteousness would be credited to your account, and there's nothing you can do to this. Any attempts that you make to add to this, these are a stain. These are an offense against God. So stop working, come, and rest in me. To a men who have devoted their life to keeping the law, 
to men who have devoted their life to overcoming, to climbing this ladder, to getting into the kingdom of God based on their own self-righteousness, their own efforts. There's nothing more threatening than this. Think about it. It's as if Jesus has come along and there's a man that's 100 feet up in the air. He's hanging on to this ladder with all his might. He's scratching and clawing just to rise one more rung. Perhaps looking back behind him, feeling somewhat haughty about all the men that he's passed along the way. And Jesus comes up and says, that was never the way this thing was meant to be used. This was never a way by which you might earn access to the kingdom. This was meant to be a thing to lead you to me. This is a path. This is a reminder. This is a shadow. This is a picture. This is a signpost. This was a tutor. It was meant to hold you fast and point you forward to me. So let loose. Just let go and free fall into my arms and I will catch you and you will be saved. You can imagine how terrifying such a call would be. As Paul wrote a letter in, uh, a little bit later in his letter to the Ephesians, if this gospel is true, if the words that Jesus preached were true, then everything Paul had devoted his life to is rubbish. We always preach that message in the affirmative and praise God that Paul now counts it all as rubbish. But you must understand the inverse of this. We are going out to the world and we are saying all that you're devoting your life to is dung. It's trash. It's nothing. So you can imagine how terrifying this thing is, but we know that not only was this gospel a, a, a threat against the way of life that Paul had embraced, against this life that he had built, we know that in his mind, it was an assault on the God he knew. You recognize they called Jesus a blasphemer because not only did he tell them that they must let loose of their own efforts and their own sense of righteousness with regards to the law, but he claimed himself to be the son of God. So this gospel was not only a threat against what they believed the law to be, this gospel was a threat against who they believed God to be. And you must know, dear friends, that when you look men in the eye and you say, God is not who you've always believed him to be, you'll experience fury the likes of which you could never imagine. That's exactly what Paul saw in the face of Jesus Christ and in this gospel that he proclaimed. And so perhaps not even fully understanding why, we see that Paul isn't just scared, but he's furious. With the same zeal that he pursued the law of God, he now pursued these people of the church. Paul would recount later as he was speaking before a great Jewish crowd in Acts 22, beginning in verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way, that is the church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He would later say in Galatians 1.13 that he was so zealous for the faith of his fathers that he persecuted the church with an absolute desire to destroy it. See, Paul didn't merely reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sought to destroy any who would hold fast to it. So we see that in the earliest days of the church, this man called Paul, he was, he was leading the front. He was, he was leading the charge in trying to destroy the church. We know that he was there at the stoning of Stephen. We read that people took their outer garments and they threw them at the feet of Saul. Surely a, a, a picture, a symbol of his leadership in this act. We read in Acts beginning in verse uh, 8, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men, 
buried Stephen and made a great lament over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, Paul was a brilliant man. We read in Acts 26, 24 that everyone knew of his knowledge and of his wisdom and, and of all his learning. And yet all of this wisdom and all of this knowledge and all of this brilliance, it was absolutely worthless when cladded behind a hardened heart of sin and hatred. So because of this, Paul was not satisfied. He wasn't, he wasn't just satisfied rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just satisfied trying to destroy the church there in Jerusalem. He could not be happy as long as he knew that they were out there somewhere. He said, darkness cannot stand even knowing that the light exists. It must be snuffed out. So we read in Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was Paul, a man devoted to going to the ends of the earth, doing anything he must do to destroy Christ and his church, but God. At that point that God interceded in his life. We read in Acts 9, beginning in verse 3. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. We learn a little bit more about this message when we skip forward to Acts 26, verse 16. It says that Jesus says to him, Rise and stand to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this very purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those to, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from uh, your people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness and to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We see as God intercedes into, into Paul's life at this moment and he tells him, to persecute the church is to persecute me. Dear friends, I do pray, not the purpose of this morning's message, not the main thrust, but I do pray that you see how closely you're connected with Christ. That when those, that, when, when those who are an opponent of the gospel would attack the, the, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, it's an attack on Christ himself. That at any moment he can intercede. At any moment he sees fit, he can intercede and bring that persecution to a halt. It's exactly what he does in the life of Paul here. But he tells him, I haven't just stopped this attack that you're bringing against the church. I've called you to something great. I've called you to go and take this message to the Gentiles. I've called you to go and call people out of darkness and into the light. I've called that you would give freedom and salvation to people as you treat to them this very same gospel that you're now persecuting. Beloved, you must recognize that when the Apostle Paul speaks about the illuminating power of God, when he speaks about the sovereign work of God and completely changing a man's heart, changing his will, changing his desires, changing the course of his entire life, he speaks from the utmost of personal experience. This man went from a vicious persecutor, a bloodthirsty man determined to destroy the church of Christ, to a spirit-filled messenger, to a man that would devote his entire life to spreading this gospel, no matter what it cost him personally. And you gotta look at this man's life before this. You need to recognize that Paul hadn't hit rock bottom. He says that he was rising in Judaism beyond other men his same age. He said that he himself was blameless with regards to the law. He hadn't hit rock bottom. In addition to this, he wasn't seeking God. He thought he already had him. 
In addition to this, he wasn't wondering about Christ. He already knew that he hated him. All the things that we're told men need in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul had none of them. And yet in an instant, with a flash of glory from heaven, with the voice of Jesus Christ, everything changed. You notice that Jesus didn't ask Paul for consent. He didn't ask for approval. He didn't ask for him to take the first steps. He didn't ask for him to show indications that he was open to the gospel. You talk about invading a man's life. You talk about imposing your will on another man's life. See Paul. In an instant, his life was completely turned upside down when the glory of God in Christ came flooding into his life. He was left blind and shaken and saved. From this moment forward, his life would be about one thing, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. The most prolific writer in all the New Testament. Apart from Jesus Christ, I can say with absolute certainty that if you spent any time studying this word, Paul has been a greater influence on the way you understand Christ and his gospel than anyone who has ever lived. Men charged with bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul should be more precious to us than we can ever imagine. It's impossible to overstate it. Truly, God used this man. Speaking through him by the power of his spirit, truly God used this man to bring to us an immeasurable treasure. You see, life for us is found in the life of Jesus Christ, and no one has helped us to see Jesus more clearly than the Apostle Paul. We praise God for the ways he's worked through this man and what we find in his life. I'm gonna go ahead and give you some behind the scenes. My, my plan at this point, right here, right here, my plan at this point was that I was going to list for you 10 things we can learn about God from the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't because there was only 10 things. It was because I knew 10 was probably all I could handle. But here was the problem. As I came to each one of those 10 things, I wrote an entire sermon. So our options are, I could turn this into a 10 or 20 or 30 part series on the life of the Apostle Paul, which I don't think is what God would have us to do at this point. Or I could just look at these particular pieces and the way in which this encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus completely changed Paul's image, his understanding of himself and of God. And what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is a beautiful picture of what happens when we actually see Jesus Christ as he is. How many times have I called you, church, to look to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be changed? For people that don't understand this, for people that come into this place and they've, they've never heard this kind of teaching before, they've never, they've never seen it coming out of, the, out of the pages of Scripture, it sounds like voodoo. It sounds like nonsense. You're telling me that my greatest hope is just to see the face of Jesus? Like literally just see someone's face. And that's somehow going to transform me by the working of his spirit. And yet we see in the life of this man exactly how this happens. You see, in going back to the book of Philippians, Paul has just, he, he listed out all those things about his old life. He, he talked about how in his previous life, even though he was deceived, even though he was separated from God, as a, as a Pharisee, as a man that had determined that he was going to give his life to fulfilling the law and teaching others to fill the law, Paul believed himself to be righteous and pure. You see, he only knew to compare himself to other men. I told you that for men like this, that there is no delight in the law of God, and that's not entirely true. There is delight in the law of God whenever they can use it as a measuring stick to prove they're better than others, or perhaps as a rod to beat sinners. 
You remember the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. We're told that the man stood there and he looked around as he prayed loudly to God and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer or unjust or an extortioner. I thank you especially that I'm not like that man, a tax collector, a sinner. And we have to imagine that this is the same haughtiness that reigned in Saul's life. And it wasn't until God broke forth with the glory of Christ that, that his, tune, his tune completely changed. And I'm going to walk you through three verses here. And I want you to see the progression in Paul's life. I'm working chronologically through these texts. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, this would have been written about 55 AD. Paul says, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. So at this point in Paul's ministry, he says, look, I'm the lowliest of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. Then we get to Ephesians 3, 8. This was written in 60, 62 AD, something around there. He says, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. He says, not only am I least of the apostles, not only am I unfit to be an apostle, I'm the least of the saints. Then we come down a little bit more, and we get to about A.D. 64. He's writing to the pastor, Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, and he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full uh, acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Do you see the progression in Paul's life? As he continues to grow an understanding of God, as he continues to see more clearly the face of Jesus Christ and the glory that is his, his own thoughts about himself just go downward fast. He says, I'm the worst of the apostles. I probably shouldn't even be an apostle. You know what? I'm not even the best of the saints. You know what? I'm the worst of the sinners. Now, in today's day and age, people would come along and say, look, 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 look. It's not healthy for you to have such a poor image of yourself, Paul. And is it, is it really good for a leader in the church to stand up and talk about himself like this? But church, you must understand that there is not one single call in Scripture to self-esteem. Nowhere does God say in his word, your greatest problem is you don't think highly enough about yourself. Instead, we're called to modesty and self-forgetfulness. We're, we're told that in humility, we're to count others as more significant than ourselves. Now, many people, they read these words and they know that they're true. They see the humility of Christ. They see the humility of, uh, 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 that, that comes through in more faithful, more, more mature believers. And they strive for that. They want to give themselves to that kind of humility, that kind of self-forgetfulness. And so what they do is they downplay every good work that God has done in and through them. They poo-poo whatever fruits people take notice of by the working of the Spirit in their life. And ultimately, whatever humility they manage to muster, it's all false. Because what they've done is they've just devoted themselves to continue to focus on themselves, but just to think worse. They are still their focus. They are still the center of the universe. It's just I'm going to try to think bad thoughts about myself. I'm trying to utter bad words about myself. But in the life of Paul, what we see is the closer he, he draws to Christ, the more fully he sees his glory, his beauty, his magnificence, is the radiance of God's glory. It just overpowers his life. Everything else gets dim real quick. Do you understand? It's easy for a man to be proud and feel strong and brave when he looks at a lion behind bars in a zoo. But uncage that lion and let the man stand face to face and he will repent quickly of ever having felt proud. This is what happened. The key to thinking rightly about ourselves, the key to true Christ-exalting humility is not to sit around and think badly about yourself, it's to see Christ as he is. It's to behold his beauty, his glory, his power, his holiness, and again I say everything becomes dim. And it's from that place that you recognize your own depravity. 
You recognize how filthy your best works are. You recognize your wretched state apart from him. You recognize your absolute dependence on him to do anything to pull you out of the sin, the flesh which continues to make war. And it's from this place that you will find true joy and worship, not depression and self-loathing. Do you understand? I hear from so many men that come into this church and they say, I leave this place and I have no sense of joy. Why can't you preach to us a message of joy? Dear friends, this is where your joy is found. Your joy is not found in being told how pretty you are, how you're mostly all right, how you're going to be okay in the end. Dear friends, your joy is found in seeing Jesus Christ as he is, in forgetting yourself, is being so consumed with his glory, his majesty, his beauty, his might, and then recognizing, and he's completely for me. He won't leave me where I am. I deserve to be utterly destroyed in his presence, and I understand the gift that I receive as I see his beauty, as I see his righteousness, and recognize that that righteousness has been credited to my account, that I am now as righteous before God as I will ever be, and there's nothing I can do to add from or detract from that. And I recognize that he has not only set me free from sin, but he's continuing to put to death the flesh as it rears its ugly head time after time after time. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in one breath, I'm the chief of the sinners. And in the very next breath, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you see? That's true joy. That's unshakable joy. That's the joy that doesn't come from staring at yourself in a mirror comes from a heart that's enraptured with God. When you recognize that this same ferocious holiness that should consume you is refining you. When you recognize that this lion is not caged, that he cannot be contained, but that he is holy and ferociously and completely for you. You don't need to think highly of yourself. You need to see the massive nature of God. And it's from that place that we find some explanation for why this man was able to walk with such joy in the middle of real suffering. I told you there was 10, 20, 30 things I wanted to show you and I prayed, God, what is the thing these people need to hear more badly than anything else? And it is this. You can learn from the life of the Apostle Paul that God will bring you joy in the middle of suffering. One of the most beautiful things about being a part of this church is having your heart ripped out as you watch your brothers and sisters and walk alongside them in suffering. As we take communion together and I watch family after family crawling to the table, knowing what's going on in their lives, they come to this table and they say, if Christ doesn't meet me here and strengthen me, I will not last one more day. And then watching as he faithfully does it day after day after day. But dear friends, I tell you, we can look to what God has done in the life of this man called Paul and you can recognize that you won't just survive another day, you will thrive and find joy. Let me show you how. Because this man, he didn't get a honeymoon period. He immediately comes to an encounter with Jesus Christ and we're told, we're, we're told that right after his, right, right after his, um, right after his conversion, you know, he's, he's, he's led to Damascus, and in, in, in Damascus, there's a man called Ananias, and he was told to go to the street called Straight, and he's understandably hesitant because he's heard about Paul, but the Lord says to this man, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the, and the, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
This is so good. Please understand that what, what God is saying to Ananias, he isn't saying, look, I know that Paul has been very bad, but don't worry, I'm going to make him earn his way in. He isn't saying, I know that this man has been very bad, but don't worry, I'm going to make sure he proves that he really means it through suffering. No, 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 no. He says, he is my chosen instrument. I have chosen him for this good purpose, and the weight of my name is great. The only path of walking with me is through suffering. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. He will suffer, and he will suffer greatly. This is not payment for his sin. This is the only path with me. And again, I say there was no honeymoon period. His suffering was already underway. As the radiance of Christ shines into his life, and he's left blind. This was noonday. We're told this is the middle of the day. And however this light came to him, it was greater than the sun. This is not just a blindness, a physical blindness. This is a supernatural blindness that even though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And we're told that Paul was without sight for three days, and he neither ate nor drank. Now, I cannot imagine what's going through Paul's mind in this moment. He's just had an undeniable encounter with Jesus Christ. His whole world's turned completely upside down. Not only does he know that everything that Christ and his disciples have preached is true, but now his hatred has turned to love. God completely did what he promised he would do. He reached into his chest, pulled out the heart of stone, gave him a heart of flesh, changed his will, changed his desires, changed his affections. He knew that all of this was true. And yet, the suffering was real. As Paul sat there in darkness, fasting, he had no clue what the rest of his life would look like. We know that he received this message from Christ that you're gonna go and take this message to the ends of the earth. But he didn't know. Does that mean I'm gonna do this in this state through the rest of my life? Will I be blind forever? He knew that he certainly deserved much more. This is why he fell on his face whenever he recognized who was speaking to him. He knew that anything short of eternal wrath in hell was a blessing, was a grace, was a gift. And this is key to recognizing how we're to respond in our suffering, recognizing how much worse we deserve. That every breath... Every ounce of energy, every day on this planet is a gracious gift from God, much more than we deserve. But the suffering was real. And Paul surely felt alone. Because you see, the men who were once his friends, they're now his enemies. The men who were once his enemies that are now his brothers, they wouldn't receive him because they were terrified. So he's sitting there in darkness, probably too emotionally wrapped up in everything in order to be able to ask for food or drink, or perhaps he was fasting, not knowing, in complete uncertainty of what comes next. But here's what the Lord told Ananias. He said, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Do you understand what God had done? This man who was a new convert, this man who had just come to recognize Jesus as Lord. By the way, you recognize Jesus didn't ask him any questions. He said, rise and go, and I'll show you what to do. That's what discipleship looks like. But in this place, as he's there, as God has ripped away all the distractions, he can't see anything. He has no friends left around him. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's alone, and he says, let me introduce you to Christ. Let me allow you to spend some time alone with Christ. So he spends these three days in prayer. He saw himself as he was. He saw Christ as he was. And in that moment, that was enough. That was all he needed. And we must know that as Paul walked through his ministry, surely those three days were more precious than any other. As he remembers those first three days when he was alone with the Lord, those first three days when he rightly recognized who he was and who God was and how Jesus Christ was his only hope, how those three days carried him through so much suffering. Because this wasn't the end of Paul's suffering. You know this. 
He listed for us in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the city, danger from the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, and exposure. Dear friends, we don't have time to work through all of these, although we could, but even just in the 39 lashes, as Paul's back was ripped open, was laid bare, surely he would have passed out and they would have had to wake him up so they could continue the punishment bringing him right up to the point of death. And yet, not just once did he receive this, but five times. With each new set of lashes, the sensitive skin, the exposed skin, the scars were laid back open. And yet, Paul knew that at any moment he could make this stop. All he had to do was to deny Christ or simply abandon the message and the mission. And yet, he would not. In addition to this, Paul knew that at any moment, God could make it stop. Do you understand? Again, I tell you that Paul was going to persecute the church. He was going to imprison, to arrest, to possibly kill more Christians. And he knew that with, from, with a light from heaven and a voice from God, it stopped. He completely transformed his heart. He knew that he could do the same to every single one of his Jewish brethren. He recognized that God could make the suffering stop. So you must know that Paul embraced every ounce of suffering that he received under the full weight and the full conviction and the full assurance and the full encouragement that God is sovereign in my suffering and that God is sovereign enough to stop the suffering. As God is sovereign enough to turn my heart, to turn me away from a life of persecution and to bring me to Jesus Christ, then he is sovereign enough to use every last ounce of this suffering for my good. This is why he goes to God time after time and remember he had the, he had the thorn in the flesh, whatever this was. He goes to God and he asks him three times to remove it, and each time God says, no, no, no. Paul knew what God could do. This did not drive him to despair. This did not drive him to doubt. This did not drive him to abandon his mission or to abandon prayer. Time after time after time, he came back to God in the middle of his suffering, and it led him to a place where he could declare that he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How many times does he call the church of Jesus Christ to find joy in the middle of suffering? And he's not being flippant. He's not being glib. He's saying that in the middle of your greatest suffering, you must know that at the ultimate and the highest level, it is God who has brought this into your life. At the highest and the ultimate level, you must know that God is using this for your good. At the highest and the ultimate level, you must recognize that in the middle of this, his desire for you is to find true joy. And the way that you will find this is you will learn to go deeper and deeper into communion with him. We'll end with this because we're almost out of time, but we see it most clearly perhaps in the third chapter to the letter to the uh, Philippians. It's there again that we've read through this passage where Paul lists everything that he once had. This is the secret to finding joy. This is the secret to finding joy in the middle of suffering. Paul recounts everything that he once had in his former life. He lists his credentials and all that he had. And at that moment in Paul's life, you must know that letting loose of this was the thing that caused him the greatest anxiety. The thought of losing this life that he had, the thought of losing these treasures that he had, uh, he had uh, compiled for himself. This was the most terrifying thing in all the world. That's why he fought so desperately to hold on to them. Do you see yourself in this? As you build a kingdom for yourself, 
you recognize that something that God has said might threaten that, and then you fight like the devil to keep it? You cling to it like it's your everything? Paul is now able to look back on that, and he says in Philippians 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, whatever that once was, that stuff that I once cling to as if it were my life, Jesus stripped me of it so that I might have him. Even just think back to those first three days. He stripped me of all the things that I once called dear so that I could be alone with him in those three days of prayer. So he could give himself to me. Not just give himself to me, that I could know him. That I could grow in my understanding. That I could see his face. Jesus stripped me of all of it so that I could have him. Now we might be tempted to say, well yeah, but it was a good thing that God stripped you of those things because those weren't good things. You're talking about the law. You're talking about, about trying to fulfill the law in your own efforts. You're talking about being a Pharisee. You're talking about persecuting the church. You're talking about self-righteousness. Those weren't good things. So, of course, you count those things as loss now that you see Christ. But he goes on because he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything. Not just the things that we counted as bad, but everything. My sight, my health, my friendships, my freedom, even my life. I counted all as loss compared to surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, lest we think that Paul is just talking about something theoretical, he goes on to say, for his sake, that is Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He's saying, not only am I talking about the bad things, not only am I talking about the good things, I'm talking about the things that I've actually let loose of. And I stand here today having lost them all, telling you that they were all rubbish. They were all dung. They were all lost. You stack up everything this world has to offer you here. You put Jesus Christ here, and he wins every time. And I'm telling you that there is something within my heart that makes me cling to these things. I try to find satisfaction, I try to find safety, I try to find security, I try to find purpose in all of these things. And so as a gift from God, he strips these things away that I may know him more. Do you understand? That's all suffering is. All suffering is is the loss of things you want. Do you get this? That's literally it. When you're suffering physically, all it is is that you're losing comfort or mobility or whatever it is. Suffering is the loss of things that you otherwise wanted. And in this, God is giving you the incredible gift of showing you how desperately you need Christ. Because as all this stuff is stripped away, you find that he's still there. You find that in the end, you are going to lose all this anyway, but he was always there. That he's the thing that can't be lost. Because he was never the thing that you ran to. He came and pulled you out of darkness. He promises he won't let loose. And so the gift of God in losing all of this is we find joy in Jesus Christ. But for so many, we're still busy fighting and holding on to this. We're still looking over our shoulder and lamenting. How many men do you find that they stand in a pulpit like this and they brag about all the things they've given up for the sake of Christ? And what you realize is that in their heart, they're still lusting after those things. They're acting as if they have given something to Christ, not recognizing that he has given you himself. Not that you can ever attain more of Christ because he goes on to say that this is my hope, that I will be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that uh, depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. He says, my desire is that I would know him. All of these things threaten my ability to know him, to see him, to rely on him, to cherish him. And so the more of these things he strips away, the more deeply I press in here. Do you see it? 
But as long as you're fighting for these things, as long as you're clinging onto these things, as long as you're thinking about the things that you've given up for his sake, you're robbing yourself of this joy. You will not experience this joy. You will not see his face. So that's what we learn from the life of Paul. As he walks through this, and time after time after time, you may begin to wonder, is this guy a glutton for punishment? How does he keep pressing on? How does he press on saying that I'm, I'm confident that in this life, whether in this life or in this death, that God will be glorified in my body? How can that be his ultimate goal? Because he recognizes. How can he say that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? He says, because if I continue to live, I'm going to continue to lose stuff. Because the path to glory is one of suffering. So if I continue to live, I will continue to lose stuff. I will continue to gain more of him. And then in that final day when I die, I have it all. All of this gets stripped away. We look forward to heaven. That's our, that's our hope. We long for the days of heaven. Do you understand what you're longing for in heaven? It's the ultimate loss. It's everything that you're fighting to hold on to. You lose all of that in that day that you may see Christ as he is. And so do you see a foretaste that he's giving you in your suffering? saying, let me give you a taste of heaven. Because what heaven is, is less of this and more of me. So every day your health goes down. Every day your bank account falls apart. Every day that you're filled with all levels of anxiety about your marriage or your children or your boss or whatever it is, he says, I'm giving you a taste of heaven. I'm not Pollyanna, guys. You know that. Because in the middle of that, there will be real tears. What did he say? We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So I come to you in the middle of your loss, and I say, that hurts, doesn't it? And I cry with you. And yet you're rejoicing because you're seeing his face. Do you see it? I listened to a pastor yesterday. I'm a, I'll finish with this. I know we're running short. I listened to a pastor yesterday, and he blessed my heart so much because he said that when you grasp this, you have the ability to come alongside people who are suffering, and you don't have to feel bashful about your joy. And you can come alongside people that are filled with joy, and you don't have to feel embarrassed about your sorrow. You'll be more real than you've ever imagined being. Rejoicing through the tears. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We don't worship any man save and accept the God man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we do thank you for this man called Paul because of what you did in his life, what, the way you spoke through him, the way he has helped us to see you as you are, the way in which you have used his life and his suffering to show us what true joy looks like. So Father, as we set out to continue studying this word verse by verse, line by line, word by word, Father, I pray that at each step of the way we will see you more clearly. We'll see ourselves as we are and we will see Jesus Christ as our only hope and our ultimate joy. Father, and from that place, we pray that we would be a people of worship, that we would devote our lives to bringing you all the honor and glory that you deserve. So as we stand now and seek to lift our voices as one, we pray that you would be glorified and that you would receive this praise. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.